Can you hear me? I'm in Genesis 2. So if we review quickly what we've talked about already in Genesis, what we have seen is a perfect, complete, all-knowing, all-powerful God who stoops down to our level to create for us a heaven and earth that we can enjoy and is meant for us. And today, what we're going to see is a brief, brief window of time. A brief window of time. I don't know about any of you, but I had a really rough week. I had some stuff happen at work, and it was really hard. And it can be hard when you have these weeks to remember that we have a perfect, complete, all-knowing, all-powerful God, and that he is on our side. It can be hard to remember that. And this brief time in history... This brief time, Genesis 2, is the only time we really see a world that doesn't have sin. God has created everything, and in the next chapter, man lets sin into the world. Man brings sin into this world. And not until the very end of the Bible, when God wraps all of history up, do we see this ever repeated again. So we have a very brief window, and there's a few things to note about sin. There's a few things to note about sin. It has infected and twisted everything. Everything has been ruined by sin. It is far more horrible than we could ever understand. Uh, As much as it's difficult for us to understand a perfect and complete, all-knowing, all-powerful God, as hard as it is for us to understand that, it's just as hard for us to understand how horrible sin is, which removes us from that God, which takes us from his presence. And we will only be free of sin We will only be free of sin when we die or when Jesus comes to end time. Otherwise, we are stuck on this world with sin permanently. And so, as you go through this tough week, it's hard to remember that there was a time that the world was sin-free. And it's hard to remember that this is not the way the world was supposed to be. God didn't make it this way. Man made it this way. And so we have this very brief, beautiful window of what God creates that is perfect. Here in Genesis 2, we can see that God has given us four gifts before sin enters the world, and that now, as Jesus has gone to the cross, he has redeemed for us. That Christians, Christians are called to live with these redeemed gifts as though they have been redeemed and to separate them from sin. We can't because we live in a sinful world that has infected everything and is much worse than we could ever understand. But that is what Christ did on the cross. He redeemed us and he redeemed the world. So there are three aspects of creation that we're going to see in Genesis 2 that God meant to be perfect. The first thing he's going to give us is rest, a Sabbath. The second thing he's going to give us is work and purpose. And the third thing he's going to give us is marriage. Marriage. If you've seen The Princess Bride, I hopefully you got my, my joke in the title, of the, my, my title of my sermon today. Marriage is what brings us all together today. All right? My wife told me not to do it, but I did it anyway. So my big question today, my big question today, how can we live as though these things have been redeemed by Christ? They have been redeemed. Now we need to live like it. So first, the first gift, Sabbath rest. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The, the seventh day is set apart. It's blessed. It's different from the other days. And what's interesting is we don't have the refrain of evening and morning, the seventh day. That refrain doesn't happen for here because the seventh day, the day of rest, was never supposed to end. It was supposed to continue. God was never meant to do any more work in the sense of how God has worked before. In fact, the next time we see God doing work, if you will, is after sin has entered the world and he's searching for Adam. We'll talk about that next week. The rest was never supposed to end. And what we see here is an example of New Testament Sabbath. We should know that the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy, is the only commandment not repeated in the New Testament. New Testament believers are not held to that same commandment in the way Old Testament believers were. And the reason for that is quite simple, because Jesus is our Sabbath. In the Old Testament, it's marked with do. Go do something. You have to go do it. Go be good. Go behave. Go do, and then rest. Well, the New Testament is marked with done. Jesus did it. Jesus did the work. Jesus put it on the cross. It's done. Rest. Rest. It's over. We don't need to fret about these things anymore. You don't have to do something. Jesus has done it already. The Old Testament is marked with do and then rest. The New Testament is marked with rest and then do. And if you look actually through Genesis 1, you can see that God also kind of does that same thing. He actually rests and then works. Rests and then works. It's just another way to look at it. What we see is New Testament rest that he's given us. It's done. The work is done. And we see the corruption of sin in rest in multiple ways. First of all, we don't rest. Americans especially are bad about this. We, we tend to take it as a badge of honor to go tell people how busy we are and how much we're doing and how much we need to accomplish. And if we're not busy 24-7, 365 all the time, then something is wrong and we feel like we're doing something wrong. That's not the way God intended it. We also seek rest in things that are not restful or things that are sinful. Jesus is our rest. We go to him to get our rest. We don't go to alcohol, we don't go to drugs, we don't go to other things that are not restful. And we know that those things are not restful, but because of our fit sinful nature, they are tempting. That's sin. That is our sinful nature calling out to want to sin. And on the other side of things, if we see this as a spectrum, because sin has infected everything, we also have this, the people that all they do is rest. And it's, it's no longer rest if you're not working in some fashion. Now we just call that laziness. You have to do something as well, and we're going to talk about work here in a second. That's the next thing God's given us. But what we need to understand is that the true work, the true work, which the only work that matters, is us being connected again with God. That's the only work that matters is done is done. So my principle here 
we understand that our rest is redeemed when we seek our rest in Jesus Christ. He has done the work. We must accept it and acknowledge his work. It is wrong for us to seek to add to what Jesus has done. We cannot do anything to make our more saved or to make him love us more. His work on the cross is sufficient. It is enough. It is all I need in the world, all I need to meet everything I want. There are, and that's why people can go to prisons and to camps and to prisoners of war camps and, and, to, and to the Holocaust and the death camps and, and, and they can still find contentment because all we need is Jesus on the cross. His work is sufficient. We find our rest in him. And seeking to add to that would be the same as offering more sacrifices. If I were to walk a cow in here and sacrifice him, that would be wrong. It would be an abomination to the Lord because it would no longer be accepting what Jesus has done. This is why Ephesians says we are saved by grace through faith because there's nothing else we can do. We've been given rest. Nothing we do adds to our salvation. But now we're going to talk about our work because our work is a gift returned back to God. And this is the second gift God gives us. Verses 4 through 17. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when, the earth, when, when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What we see there is him just stepping back and giving us a little bit more detail of how he made God, of how he made man, excuse me, of how God made man, right? The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Syria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. That's given us a little bit of background, so we can kind of draw a map in our head. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time there, because if we do, we're honestly just going to get allegorical. We don't want to talk about those rivers meaning something or doing something. It's more of just a map of where we are. Let's make sure we stay as literal as we can for the Bible. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So while we don't add anything to what Jesus and God have done for us, we cannot add, we cannot seek to add anything to him, we are still called to work, faithful work, as a response to what he has done for us. Right? So first thing we need to notice is that we have a new name given for God. When God is used here uh, in verse, I believe, 14 is the first time, 15 is the first time we see it, then the Lord God, the name we're given there for God is actually Yahweh, Yahweh. 
Now, Elohim, when we worked with before, that's the name of God's power. When God shows creation, when he does power, it's Elohim. But Yahweh is God's legal name. If God were to come in and sign a contract, he would sign it Yahweh. So that's important because when he gives commandments, when he expects to be obeyed, he uses the name Yahweh. But we are given here Adam's job. You see, Adam was a gardener. He had been given the garden to tend. Now, imagine, again, sin has infected everything. So when we think of a garden, we think of backbreaking hard work and labor. But imagine the perfect garden. The perfect garden. There's no weeds. There's no pests. You'll always have rain. There's no hail. Right? Imagine the perfect garden. And then imagine the perfect body. You'll never grow tired. Getting down on your hands and knees doesn't hurt. Your back doesn't ache. You don't need to, it's the perfect situation. And it's fruitful labor, where he will get a labor, he will get a harvest out of this, which he will get to enjoy and give back to God. It's a perfect garden in a perfect situation. And what we see here is that work predates the fall of man. Work is a good thing. Work is a noble thing. As a response to what everything God had given Adam, Adam's response to that is to take care of it, to tend this garden. Let me give you an example. So at the library, I have a lot of weird conversations with people. That's just kind of part of the job. Um, anyone who works with the public kind of gets that. And, and at one point in time, I had a lady come, and we got to talking about this and that, various things, but she started complaining about work. And, and she was just flummoxed, and she said, you know, she doesn't understand why it is that people have to work to just to be able to live, just to be able to eat, and just to be able to put a house over there. That should all just come naturally. It just should happen. And I had to say, no, no, you're wrong. Work is a gift. Work is blessed. Work is something that we should enjoy. It's fruitful. It's invigorating. Work is a good thing, and we don't have to go back far in time to see examples of that. Honestly, just look at what happened in 2020, when all of a sudden a whole lot of people were out of work. It wasn't singing kumbaya and everyone being happy and going to church and being good things. There was rioting and trash in place because people were bored, because they needed something to do, because man is called to work. We need to work. We want to work. Work is good for us. It's a good thing. It doesn't always feel like it. it doesn't always seem like it. But work is a good thing that we give back to God. And what we see when people didn't have work in 2020 Depression and suicide rates skyrocketed. And you had two reasons for that. First, because people failed to find their rest in Christ. In that time of turmoil, they wouldn't turn to Christ, they turned to other things. And second, because we are called to labor. We are called to work. Work is a blessing. And I think we see this when we get the chance to do what we love. When we get the chance to do what we love. I had to run story times this week. Not my favorite thing to do. It's difficult. You can have up to 50 kids kind of right in your face, chucking all at once. They all need your attention all at the same time. You're trying to read them a story. They may not be interested. Some of them are, some of them aren't. You're trying to, it's, it's herding cats for an hour and a half, right? And it's very difficult. But when you're sitting there doing it, at least when I'm sitting there doing it, because it's what I'm called to do, there's this great just peace that comes. And when you find yourself in those moments of doing what God has called you to do and where he has put you, 
All I can say is it's peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. Because it doesn't make any sense at the most chaotic time. It's okay. I've got this under control. I know what we're doing. I know where we're going. And I'm not worried about it. And that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But it's a reflection of work. Work that will be given in heaven. Work that is fruitful. Work that is joyful. Work that builds God's kingdom and is for his glory. And of course, sin corrupts this purpose. Sin corrupts this purpose. Our bodies don't want to work. My back hurts. We get tired. We get sore. I have to eat. I have to drink. I don't want to work. My sinful nature wants me to sit in front of the TV. That's sin. I'm called to work. Not that resting is not... We've been there. The work is difficult. It's no longer a perfect garden. I'm dealing with 50 kids who are all sinful little beings. <laughs> sinful beings out there doing something already. Right. <laughs> and the work seems fruitless a lot of the time. It seems fruitless. It doesn't always seem like we're working for the Lord. It doesn't always seem like we're doing something that has meaning. And it can be very difficult to stay faithful and keep doing that work because we are dealing with a sinful world. But Adam is also given a second purpose. Adam is given a second purpose here. His second purpose is to obey God. God gives him a commandment. And we see here God's first commandment. The first commandment he gives people. Don't eat that fruit. Don't eat it. Don't do it. And Adam's response to God's love should have been faithful obedience. I don't need to know why I don't need to eat that. I don't need to understand what that fruit is, what it does. I don't need to be near that fruit at all. I need to obey God. Faithful obedience should have been his response to God's love. In fact, it's our response to God's love as well. 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's John. That's the apostle of love. All he talks about is love, man. Right? And he's telling us right here, if we say we love God, and yet we refuse to obey God, then we're lying. And we don't actually love God. See, many people think, many people think they love God. They want to talk great things about God. But they don't want to obey God. And, and you can't separate the two. We have nothing else to give God. Remember, we can't add to that work. All we can give him is our faithful obedience to do what he has asked us to do. Don't eat the fruit. And we also need to understand that God needs to give a commandment. It has to happen. You see, Adam must choose to love God. Love must be freely given, or else it is not love. My favorite example of this is from a man named Frank Turek, who's an apologist, and he gets asked all kinds of goofy questions. Right? One of the questions he often gets is, well, why did God give this commandment at all? Why was this tree even in the garden to begin with? And he says, well, imagine this. Right? Imagine someone, a man, loves a girl, and he starts following her. He starts following her. Do, would we call that love? No. What if, he, what if he takes her, kidnaps her, puts her in her basement, 
and says, you have to love me now. Would we call that love? No, we would not. Love must be freely given. We must freely give love. Adam must be given the choice to either obey God or disobey God, or else it is not love and God is not. He must be given the choice. And we also need to recognize that God immediately sets the standards. Recognize that disobedience leads to judgment. On the day you eat that fruit, you will surely die. But obedience leads to blessing. Not a, not a quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's not God. God doesn't need anything from us. Right? But it's a matter of you will be walking with God. You will be in the garden, in this perfect standard. The way life was meant to be, the way life should be, that would be a blessing. We know if the Holy Spirit indwells inside of us, we know that it is a blessing to walk with God and a horrible judgment to not walk with God. Not because God is necessarily doing anything for us. God is not a, vending, a cosmic vending machine where we behave and he does stuff for us. But because when we walk with him, we are walking where we're supposed to walk, doing what we're supposed to do, and it is a blessing. So my principle here, understand that our work is also redeemed. And it's redeemed when we return our work to God as a gift of worship. One of my life verses, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We elevate our work. Our, elevate, our work is not for us. Our work is not for this world here right now. Our work is so when we get to heaven, Jesus will wrap us in a big hug and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're living here for. That's what we're living here for. Our work is a gift we return back to God. And finally, we have the last gift that he's going to give us before the fall. The Lord gives us marriage before the fall. Verses 18 through 25. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, compa a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever, called, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds, to the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there is not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and were not ashamed. So we need to understand, first of all, that this is the first time that something is not good. Something is not the way it was supposed to be. There was one more thing that God had to make everything complete. It is not good that man should be alone. Now, this is not against singleness. If you find yourself single for whatever reason, this is not necessarily about that. This is an overarching right, uh, 
isolation. Jesus Christ was single. During his ministry, Paul was single. So there's no indication that to be a single is somehow be outside of God's will or not be good. That's not what he's saying. But a broader isolation of people need people. We need each other. We don't always like it. We don't always want to believe that. Trust me, I know. But we do. We need each other. People are always the resource. It's always what we need. I mean, think of a small business. You have a small business. If I were to offer you 100 workers to help you do your small business, or $100,000 to help your small business, well, if you're smart, you'll take the workers. Because the first thing you're going to have to do with that $100,000 is go hire people to work for you anyway. Because you can't do it by yourself. We can't do it. You always need more people. Always. I've never been at a job where they've complained about being overstaffed. I've never been somewhere where they said, man, there's just too many people. We need fewer here so we can overburden more with work. People are the resource. People are important. It's not good that we do this alone. And we can see this in some of the greatest evils that our world propagates, that our world pushes. I once had a lady come to the library and argue that the world was overpopulated. It's overpopulated. Well, the only logical step of that is to get rid of a bunch of people. And that's wrong. That's evil. Eugenics, basically everything the Nazis were doing. Well, the only logical step is to get rid of people who are undesirable. Any kind of racism, where one race is superior or inferior to another. The only logical step is to get rid of the inferior races. Those are all evil. Those are all wrong. And when you take them to their logical conclusions, we would all agree with that. <coughs> all of us would agree with that, because people are important. They're image bearers, and it's not good that we are alone. We need to be with other people. However, we do need to focus on marriage, because marriage is the primary tool God uses to keep us from being alone. It's not that being single you can't still find fellowship, but marriage is the tool God ordained. And so we got to start with what is biblical marriage? What is biblical marriage that God is talking about? It's, it's quite simple. It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. It is good, it is right, it is perfect, it is the way it is supposed to be. And that means because God ordained it, God or created it, God defined it, it means no one else has the right to change or alter what a marriage is. That includes the government. It is not a piece of paper that makes you married. They have no right to call gay marriage a thing. It is not a thing. It does not exist. That also includes our sinful natures. Our sinful natures cannot redefine marriage to fit what we want to do. Premarital affairs, extramarital affairs, pornography, desiring your neighbor's wife or someone else's wife who's not your own are all sinful. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That is biblical marriage. Divorce and remarriage are also sinful. One man, one woman, one lifetime. The only options, and there are only two of them, the only options are chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. That is sexuality as God ordained it. Anything else is a sin that needs to be taken to the cross. 
And the problem we have here is that our world has misunderstood the purpose for marriage. You see, marriage was never supposed to be about romantic feelings. It was never supposed to be about happy, warm, and fuzzies in your belly. It was not meant to be that we'd be happy all the time or to fulfill all of our desires. That was never the purpose of marriage. What God gives us marriage for, there's four biblical purposes for marriage. The first, the most important, is a reflection of Christ and his church. Marriage, a biblical marriage, reflects that. One man, Jesus Christ, one woman, the church, one lifetime, forever. It's possibly the most important purpose. It's literally throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 25, 26 talks about husbands being willing to die for the wife as Christ died for the church, a reflection of what Christ does for his bride. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 talks about not being unequally yoked because a believer or Jesus has no fellowship with a non-believer or an idol. They can't go together. They don't fit. It doesn't work. We are a reflection, or marriage is a reflection of Christ and his church. The second purpose for a godly marriage is godly children. To bring children into the world who will know the Lord and follow the Lord. A family is the primary means God uses for passing on the faith. Yes, there's a place for evangelism. Yes, God has done amazing things outside of the family. Of course he has. He is God. But the primary tool that God ordained is for parents to pass on their faith to their children. We see this in Malachi 2.15, where it says God seeks godly offspring. Will you bring up your kids to know the Lord? Deuteronomy 6.7, kind of a, a big verse for homeschooling, where it talks about teaching your children the law. It is your job as a parent. It's not the school's job. It's not a Sunday school job. It's not the pastor's job. Some guy standing up here, it's not their job. It's your job as the parent to teach your kids about the Lord. The third purpose for marriage is self-control. Marriage protects us from our sinful desires. God knew our desires would become sinful, and so he gave us protection against that. 1 Corinthians 7.2 talks about how it's better for people to have their own wife or to have their own husband, so they're not seeking illicit relationships elsewhere. It talks about how you fulfill each other's needs, which is finally the last purpose, companionship. The purpose we see right here in Genesis 2. It is not good that we should be alone. If you need someone, if God has ordained you for someone then you will have that someone. The other person completes us. It's a companionship, a helpmate, a helper. These four purposes are what Jesus had in mind when he spoke in Matthew 19, when he talked about marriage. He goes back to the very beginning. The two shall become one flesh. He teaches that divorce is wrong. He teaches that marriage can only exist between one man and one woman for one lifetime. He teaches that marriage is an incredibly special relationship. Incredibly special. The most special in this world. The only relationship more important is the relationship between an individual and God himself. After that, marriage takes the cake. It's more important than your buddies, more important than your work friends, more important than your children is the relationship you have with your spouse. One of my favorite quotes as I studied was from a commentator named Matthew Henry. He wrote, 
Woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved by him. That's the purpose of marriage. And I could easily argue that sin has attacked marriage in our culture more than anything else. Sin has a direct line on marriage. Rampant divorce. Rampant divorce. Anymore, the same rates in the church as you see in the secular world. About 50%. 50% of all marriages. Hookup culture. It is now easier than ever to have a one-night stand just because of your phone, what you could find on there. Living together before marriage. Is it amazing how many people profess to be Christians online and then talk about all the time they spent living with their spouse before they were married? That is not what God has ordained. And of course, pornography is absolutely rampant, ripping apart the lives of teenagers and men across the world. And the joke is... 90% of men are addicted to pornography, 10% are liars. That's the joke, because it's such a prevalent problem, and it is sinful. And we have this because marriages are typically in the West for selfish or misguided purposes, solely for a romantic love that will fade over time, based on superficial reasons of looks as opposed to the biblical reasons for marriage, and seeking to fulfill our own desires as opposed to seeking God's will. Now, statistically speaking, many of us see ourselves in sin in this area. And so I have to be a little honest here and personal because I'm not from my mom or dad's first marriage. I have no right to stand at a pulpit and condemn anyone. And that is not my purpose here is to make anyone feel bad or feel like I'm just wagging my finger at them. And I don't want you to feel that way. I have a history too before I was a Christian. And thank the good Lord, he took me and saved me, redeemed me, and I am a new creation in Christ. There is now no condemnation for my sins because I went to the cross. I have no right to stand at a pulpit and condemn anyone. But as Christians, we have an obligation to call sin, sin. No matter how much we don't want to, and no matter how much we don't like it. We have to call sin, sin, and we have to call everyone to repentance. If you still, if you still see yourself stuck in this sin, repent of it and go to the cross. If you don't see the problems with these things, study your Bible Repent of the sin and go to the cross. Taste the Lord and see he is good. He is faithful. It is not my intention to make you feel upset at me because I'm calling sin, sin. But it is my intention to point you to Christ. He is the purpose. He is the faithful obedience that we go to. He is where we find our rest. And finally, what we see here in this perfect world, in the garden, before sin entered, is two people, a man and a woman, together, naked and not ashamed. It's open. It's free. There's nothing held back from one another. They are truly one flesh in body, in mind, and in spirit. One flesh. Again, a relationship 
more important than any other relationship we will ever have on this side of heaven. And this is more than a physical nakedness. This is more than a physical relationship. It's emotional and it's spiritual as well. The two become one flesh. We recognize the importance of biblical marriage. Here's my purpose. We rec- my principle, excuse me, my principle. We recognize the importance of biblical marriage by being faithful to to the position God has called us. If single, then chastity and singleness. If married, then faithfulness in marriage. We don't always get to make that choice. In fact, we rarely do. That's something God chooses for us. That's something he's ordained for us to either be married or to be single. And if we have made mistakes in this area, if we can see our mistakes in this area, then I encourage you to repent Confess to the Lord and know that he is faithful. Know that you are forgiven. So in conclusion, we can name at least four things God has given to man before sin entered the world. Four things. The first being creation itself. The world. It is good. It is good. It is okay for us to enjoy creation, for us to go on creation, to go out in creation on walks and to enjoy it, not to worship it but to enjoy creation. It is good. He gives us rest, that we can rest in Christ. Our rest is found in God. Our rest is found with God. And our rest is found with the understanding that it is God who takes care of us. God who has done the work. Jesus did the work on the cross. He gives us work and he gives us purpose so that we have something to do. And everything we do is meant to glorify God, to be given back to him for his purpose. We work for the Lord, not for man. And finally, marriage, family. Family is a reflection of God's love for his people. It's the most important relationship in the world. And it comes from God. Marriage is what brings us here today. Let's go to the Lord.